Bibles to James chapter 4. This morning's scripture portion begins at verse 11 in James 4 and goes through the end of the chapter to verse 17. We continue this morning in a series in James. This is the 17th sermon. We're nearing the end. There's just a few more. We're going to take a break in the middle of, of, this, of the summer here in just a few weeks. James is going to bring us to consider the, the great man named Job in the Bible. And so we're going to actually do a, a six-week series this summer on the person, life, struggles and ultimately the success by God's grace the success of the man Job but this morning continues the challenge that we have in earlier in James 4 that we are not to be friends with the world Abraham in James 2:23 is called a friend of God and that should be the aspiration the ambition of every single follower of Jesus is to be a friend of God but since we live in a negative world, which is hostile to faith, I used to teach science and there's such a thing as a, 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 a petri dish in which you can grow a culture of bacteria. And if you wanna test certain things, you'll have some petri dishes with uh, a, a substrate or agar of food that, that's positive for the, the bacteria that you're trying to grow and then others that are negative. And, and if, if this world was a petri dish, it would be hostile for Christian growth. The substrate, the food that we're given in the world, does not promote healthy Christian growth. Now, by God's grace, his common goodness, not everything in the world is as bad as it could be, but certainly by far we live in a great country. For all of our struggles as Americans, we have an incredible country with incredible blessings, much to be thankful for. But as Christians, we need to recognize that this world is hostile towards the kind of lifestyle and calling, the, the set of values, the way of seeing things and thinking about our trials, all of that the world opposes. That wasn't always the case, though, for you. At some point in your life, you were very comfortable in this world. You were happy with the way that you were being fed, with the values that you were receiving, with the perspectives that you were hearing and imbibing in, in your education or just kind of in culture generally. But something changed for you. Something, a switch was flipped. James calls it that in God's gracious will, James 1.18, he caused you to be born again by the word of his truth that you might be a kind of first fruits of his new creation. Paul says something similar. He says, in Christ, we are, we are part of uh, the old has died and the new has come. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And it's not just that you're individually new. You do experience kind of a an individual new birth, but when it says that you are part of a new, that you are a new creation, Paul is also saying in 2 Corinthians 5, you are 
in a new creation. You're actually already participating in the new world that God is building. It's this world that's hostile to faith is passing away. It's the good news of the Christian message. This, this world, as you understand it, the frustration, trials, and difficulties, and challenges of the world will not always be this way. There is a whole new way of life which is coming. And this way of life has, has actually begun in the hearts and in the lives of Christians. This word of truth which is given birth to you, Jesus said you must be born again to Nicodemus. You must be born from heaven. You can't, you can't just be born from the world, from your human mother and your human father. You need a heavenly birth. But James says we need to receive this word then with meekness, James 1.21. It's not enough to be born again. It is enough. But if you're truly born again, that word is going to lay hold of your life. And you're going you're to recoil against that food that you used to be fed in the world. And you're going to seek heavenly food heavenly friendships, heavenly ways. God, who gives every good and perfect gift, the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting shadow, has given you the best gift of all, this new birth. And it came by the word of truth. But like I said, you need to receive this word with meekness. Meekness, you know, is that, that humble, understated competence that only comes from the Lord. This is how God wants you to live. That word is to be received by you. It's to guide your life as a newborn follower of Christ. You can't just be a hearer of the word, James says. But you need to be a doer of the word. This is the one who is blessed. This is the one who survives through the the stormy tests and trials of life, James 2. Consider it pure joy, my beloved brethren, when you face trials of many kinds. Well, how can you do that? How can you meet a crisis or a challenge and, and look at it with something approximating heavenly joy? Well, only if the heavenly word has taken root in your heart and you've laid hold of it, not with one hand, but with both hands, for dear life clinging to that word. And you're, you're hearing through the trials of life, you're hearing God's voice and you're seeing God's hand. This is not something that you can work up or manufacture on your own. And it's easy to lose our way. Even Christians, especially Christians. And James has written two congregations like ours who are pilgrim believers, followers of the Lord in a hostile society who are in danger of losing our way. We receive this word, but have we humbled ourselves? And this is to the point of this morning's message, verse 10 of James 4. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James 4, verse 6. He gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what I'm going to attempt to do in just, just a moment after I read the scripture. So I'm going to attempt to show you 
how the humble person receives the word of the Lord and the will of the Lord. And that's my sermon title, The Word of the Lord and the Will of the Lord. How does the humble person receive that? And James gives us a strong contrast because he shows how an arrogant person or a proud person relates to the word of the Lord and the will of the Lord. And we're called not to be arrogant, but to be humble, to humble ourselves that God will exalt us. So let's give our attention then to the reading of God's holy word in James 4, verse 11 through 17. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whether, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, him it is sin. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is indeed a guide for the redeemed. And if we're honest, we recognize that it doesn't guide us enough. We are too often like the arrogant and the boastful and the proud that choose our own way and our own will instead of your way and your will. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. The word of the Lord and the will of the Lord. How do the humble respond? Well, first is the arrogant. Well, I'm going to structure my message around two questions in the text that I've just read. Take a look at verse 12. The first question is, who are you? Who are you? It's a great question. It's a question that has been asked by sages and philosophers through the centuries. James' first crucial question imitates this when he says, Who are you? The answer for philosophy, and I'll show off some Latin here. This is about all the Latin I know. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Who are you? I'm a thinking creature. Therefore I exist. Therefore I matter. Therefore I am important. That may be how philosophers answer this question. The modern answer to this question, who are you, might be, none of your business. I am who I decide to be. But the answer of the scriptures to James's question, who are you, is this. I am a creature. I am made by the creator. I am made in his image. And I am called into fellowship with my maker according 
to His Word. I am not the master of my destiny. I don't exist because I think. I don't decide who I am. His Word tells me who I am. His Word tells me where to go. His Word tells me how to live. In other words, not only are you part of creation like the trees and the birds and the sky and the waters of the ocean and the distant stars, yes, you're made of the same stuff of the world, but it's more than that. You've been made in His image and you've been given instructions. God has revealed His will to you. He has explained His heart to you. He has shown you who He's like. And He's invited you in this Word into a relationship, a friendship, a covenant, a communion with your God. But the problem is that we, through our first parents, failed to obey that Word. The terms of friendship were broken by Adam and Eve in the garden. And so they fell from the estate in which they were created, that high condition. They lost their fellowship or their communion with God when they sinned against him. But in Christ, the estrangement, the separation, the sin has been paid for, the estrangement has been overcome, and you've been brought near to God once again by the blood of Christ. Christ Jesus, the one who heard and obeyed this word, has brought you back into a friendship with God. He who was ultimately the friend of God, the son of God, was faithful. And by his faithfulness, you have been made a friend of God as well. You've been restored by the one, by the word made flesh. Now, because you're a Christian, because you're redeemed, because you're born again by this word of God, his word is, is a guide for your life. It's, it's now your delight. It's, it's what defines you. It's, your, it's how you make decisions. It's your grid. Should I do this? What does the word say? Should I avoid that? What does the word say? You see, you're not arrogant when it comes to the word of the Lord. You know who you are. And you're a woman, you're a man who is under the word, guided by the word. You're a young man, you're a boy who, who isn't going to follow the, the pathway that your friends are following because this is your word. You're humbling yourself under the hand of the Lord and you're placing yourself, you're choosing to be a creature of the word, a creature of the word. You desire this communion with God and you know it comes according to His terms. You can't just have God on anything, on anything or on any terms. It is a lamp to your feet. It is a light to your path. It is your freedom. It is your joy and your solid rock. So what does this have to do with humility? Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The one who lives according to the word can, should, must expect that you will be saved, that you will be blessed. 
But what does the arrogant do? Well, the arrogant, when he relates to his fellow Christian or her fellow Christians in verse 11, speaks evil against one another. You see, when you think about the word, the arrogant person, the proud person, doesn't treat your friends in Christ, and now we're, we're talking about within the church, with the kind of dignity that the word says that is deserved or required. Instead, slander, speech against, criticism, judgment, mean-spirited, nasty words come out of your mouth. The sin here, speaking against, I think is how the ESV puts it, speak evil against. Another name for this is, uh, one commentator called this, denigrating a fellow believer. This is not a warning about speaking the truth. I'm just speaking the truth, sister. I'm just telling the sister, I'm telling the brother the truth. Oh no, this isn't cautioning you about not telling the truth. This is a caution about not speaking the truth in love. This is a caution about the arrogance that presumes that your message matters no matter what your style or approach. Unkindness. Poor timing. You approach the standard bearer of the Christian family, another believer bearing the image of God, a brother, a sister in Christ, heedless of that person's feelings or situation or concern, you just come in like a bull in a china shop speaking evil. One theologian puts it this way, it's talking down to someone who, like you, has been redeemed by Christ and is also a fellow servant like you. You know, I don't think speaking evil has to be direct denigration either. It doesn't have to be like, you don't matter, you're unimportant, you're small, I'm better, I'm right, you're wrong. It can be indirect. I thought about the example of among the 12 disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee in Mark 10. They come up to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. The ten are listening. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus said. And they said, grant us that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. See, James and John didn't look at the guys and say, we're better than you. They went to Jesus and said, would you give us the place of honor? I think indirectly they're speaking evil and the disciples' reaction proved it because the, the scripture there in Mark 10 tells us that they were indignant. And Jesus goes on to say, you know, the way that the world works with all this one-upsmanship and, and vying for position and, and authority and jealousy and envy and striving and covetousness and nitpicking and all that stuff, that's the extended amplified version. He says, that's not the way it's supposed to be amongst you. The one who will be great, Jesus said, what did he say? Should be your servant. 
He said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Since they were brothers, James and John, with the other ten disciples, they were on the same level as the other disciples. But their question acted as if they weren't on the same level. I think this comes out when James says in verse 12 of our text, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Why does James say this? I don't think James, he might be threatening. He might be warning us. But I think he's saying this. Are you, did you forget that God could have chosen differently in your case? He should have chosen differently in your case. He is able to destroy you and he chose to save you. Why do you think he did that? Did he did it because you were such a sparkling exemplar of humanity? This one really deserves to be saved. So why are you treating your brothers and sisters as if somehow you're all that? You are not called to denigrate or speak against a fellow Christian, not just because there's a Christian family tie there, brother, sister, but James also says that your sister, your brother, is your neighbor in verse 12. A neighbor is someone who, is, who lives next door to you, who shares the same address almost. You see your neighbor on a regular basis. You help your neighbor when he or she is out of town. You say hello. You trust your neighbor, or you should. When asked what the greatest command was by a religious expert in his day, Jesus replied, Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he was asked, well, who is my neighbor? And he pointed out a Samaritan. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, a Jew would definitely judge a Samaritan because he didn't have the right theology. He didn't have the right uh, religious pedigree. He didn't look right. He was unclean. And Jesus takes the Samaritan against the Levite and the priest and said, this one is the neighbor. Well, why is he a neighbor? Because he took the man who was beset by robbers and did everything for him. He cared for him. He, he went at great lengths. He sacrificed for him. We're looking at how the humble person relates to the word of the Lord. And the arrogant person sweeps the word aside because you've got so many words bouncing around in your head. This is tying back to James 1.19. Be, be quick to hear the word of the Lord. Stop talking to yourself so much. Stop listening to yourself so much. Be quick to hear God's word. In the church, he's saying here, in James 4, the congregation... How many congregations have just been thrown into a mess because instead of living by God's word, we're living by our own? The question, who are you, 
the arrogant person says, I'm the judge. <laughs> I'm the lawgiver. I write the word. It's just a, a fancy modern version of what Eve said or what the, the devil said to Eve. Did God really say? So I think James's point is, outwardly you may be denigrating a fellow believer, but in reality, you're actually denigrating the law, God's holy word. Effectively, when you speak against a fellow Christian, verses 11 and 12, you're saying, you know, the law, I know it says love your neighbor. Now, criticize your neighbor. That's what it should have said. So you're, you're putting yourself over the law in your marriage, as a parent to your children. The law says love your neighbor, love your husband, love your wife, show kindness. No, not this time. You become a critic of the law itself and a judge over the law, which means, and this is the scary part, the question, who are you? The arrogant person not only says, I'm better than my brother, I'm better than the law, but you wind up, and my commentator put it this way, elbowing God off the throne. <sighs> elbowing God off the throne. Because when you judge the law, you're judging the lawgiver. That's what our text says. It calls into question whether or not you're even believing and following God in the first place. God's law is not arbitrary, you see. God's law is an expression of his being. In his infinite being, he's, he's surveyed himself and all of his wisdom and insight and glorious knowledge. And he said, of all the infinite glory that I am, this word is what my creatures need. It's a thimbleful of the Pacific Ocean. But this is what we've got. And he designs us in this word as we humble ourselves under this word, the word of the Lord, that we begin to embody God. That people see us and they see God. They're around us and they experience God. And we become conformed to his image. It's it's like training wheels. Did you ever have training wheels on your bike? That's what the word is. And riding free with no training wheels, that's for heaven. For now, we're being shaped by the word of God, the word of the Lord. So when you say his word isn't good for me and you, you nudge him off the throne or elbow him off the throne... You're not only speaking against a fellow believer, you're speaking against God himself. So when James asks the question, who are you, or who do you think you are, here's the right answer. It should go something like this. I am a person seeking to walk in lowliest humility before God and under his word. This is the way of blessing. This is the place of a creature 
who's been invited into a friendship with God. I have learned that the way of the Word and the Word of the Lord is the best way I'm learning. So I'm going to stick in that narrow path because every other place is dangerous. I have learned that the way down is the way up, not to exalt my thoughts on my fellow Christians, on the Scriptures, and God forbid, against God Himself. I will seek the lowest place and trust Him. But when you exalt yourself and answer this question wrongly, who are you? You don't only oppress, hurt, harm, disturb the brethren, the sistren in the church. You divide the church. You scatter the sheep. Scandal. But you actually assault God's word itself and the very life of God is called into question. The second crucial question Not only who are you, but look at my text in verse 14. What is your life? If you write in your Bible, write this in the margin. What is the purpose of life? That's what he's asking. Or how do you define life? Now, the arrogant answers this question in a vivid manner. We have, this is not quite a parable. I think it may be an example. It's sort of a story, maybe. It's an illustration. We'll call it an illustration. This is the uh, illustration of the rich and successful businessman. That's what this is. What does he say? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. What is your life? Well, here's the arrogant answer. My schedule is my life. And what I say it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Today, tomorrow, a year, I'm in charge of my time. My calendar, I've got this nailed. I'm in control. The arrogant says, I know where I'm going. What is your life? I'm not only in charge of my time, today, tomorrow, a year. I know where I'm going. I'm going to such and such a city. That's my destination. I'm the master of my destiny. I have my hand on the rudder. I plugged in the coordinates, and I'm going to arrive at where I'm going, when I'm going, and where I'm going. What does the arrogance say about the outcome of his or her successful business? Money, baby. This thing is a sure bet. I'm going to trade, and I'm going to make a profit. I know where I'm going, I know when I'm going, and I know the outcome. That's the arrogant answer to what's life all about? It's about me, my plans, my schedule, 
my goals, and my outcome. That's what life is all about. And what does the humble say? Scripture says in James 4, 6 that God opposes the proud. That little sketch of the rich businessman, God opposes that. But he says he gives grace to the humble. We see how the arrogant answers what is the purpose of life. What does the humble say? Well, the humble says, look at verse 14. The humble knows what he doesn't know. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. By the way, this word tomorrow is really important. You should circle it. Tomorrow isn't like, I'll meet you at 11.30 on Monday. That's not tomorrow. Tomorrow is not today. That's tomorrow. Anything except today. In fact, we could say, Anything except ahora, this moment, right now. Tomorrow is the next moment. You don't know what your next moment brings. And so the humble answer to the question about my schedule is God's in charge. I don't know what my tomorrow will hold. The humble knows what he doesn't know. The humble also knows this. The humble knows that he is insubstantial. What is your life? You are a mist or a vapor. You know, a mist is something if you were to reach into the mist and try to grab it. You can picture a steaming pot of water and the mist that's rising or if it's a foggy morning and and that mist is kind of clinging to the grass almost like fabric or if you're in an airplane and you fly through a cloud if you could stick your hand out the window and scoop up some cloud you just your hand would pass through air you're a mist reach into a mist and it's there's nothing there It's like if I could reach into you, I'd pass right through you. You'd be like a ghost. You say, what do you mean I'm a ghost? I I have hands. I have feet. I'm, I'm sitting here. Well, in comparison to the eternal, almighty, everlasting God, you are a mist. You're insubstantial. The humble person knows not only that he's insubstantial, but he knows that his life is temporary. What is your life? For you are a mist, verse 14, that appears for a little while. How's that for an epitaph on your gravestone? She appeared for a little while. You know, the saying that your life, I was born in 1970, and I don't know when my last day will be. Let's say it's tomorrow. 1970, 2022, all those years with one little line, one little line is a person's whole life. You're temporary, and then finally you are impermanent. Um, Make a note here, read Ecclesiastes. 
All is vanity. When James says that you will be no more, it's like, who is that Phil Henry guy? Uh, wasn't he, um, is he a preacher? Yeah, I think he was. It's like Philly, South Jersey, Connecticut, I don't know, somewhere on the East Coast, right? Yeah, do you remember any of his sermons? No. He's no more. He is no more. Oh, I'll tell you a good one, and then somebody will tell a Phil Henry story. And then it's time to go. He is no more. Gone, gone, gone. This is the humble answer to the question, what is life? You know what you don't know. You know that you're insubstantial. You know that you're temporary. You know that you're impermanent. What does this mean for humility? I don't think it means that planning and preparation for the future is wrong. I don't think it's that you're forbidden to have a business plan if you're a businessman. I think what's forbidden here is prayerless presumption. Repentance for the entrepreneur or the businessman or the person who likes to have an orderly schedule, whatever it may mean, doesn't mean that you have to give up making plans. It means that God and eternity are creatively and consistently woven into the fabric of your plans. That bears repeating. God and the things of eternity are creatively and consistently woven into the fabric of your plans. Even if it's something as simple as preparing for the unexpected. Some Christians like this phrase, Lord willing. It shows up in our passage. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Sometimes this can come off as almost a mantra. Lord willing, 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 Lord willing. Instead of being a mantra that you sort of staple on to the end of your sentences, it should be more like a lifestyle. I'm calling it a thy will be done lifestyle. This is a Lord's Prayer lifestyle. So as you think about your life, as you think about your plans, as you think about your future, as you think about the meaning of life, think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you choose to use me, little old me in that, I will be very, very grateful. A Lord's Prayer lifestyle. The word of the Lord and the will of the Lord. The humble love these two things, and when you love them, you will make them the theme of your life. And this hymn that I love, that my family loves, You will live the truth of this hymn day by day and with each passing moment. Strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. 
He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. The humble love the word of the Lord, and we live the will of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, which reminds us of your will. They go together. And we ask that we would be more a people of your word and of your will than we are, particularly in this matter of divisions in the church, hurt feelings and indignation, envy, jealousy, speaking against one another in this church. I pray that would have no place. And in other Christian churches across Gloucester County and South Jersey, we pray for healing and restoration where words have hurt. We pray for renewal amongst your people. That we would say, not we're going to do this and we're going to do that, but the will of the Lord be done. We would be Lord's Prayer kind of people, Lord's Prayer kind of Christians as we go about our day to day. And may we find that indeed you have given us strength to meet each trial. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.